Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. Hi, it's G3 and on this episode of the pod... Jordi and I will be speaking with Rao Pal, CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, a financial media company and platform dedicated to the mission of democratizing the financial markets. Rao is also an investment strategist, economic historian, business cycle economist, and a self-described journeyman. In this conversation, we covered a lot of ground and the episode is longer than usual. But if you stick around, and I hope you do, I think you'll find it well worth the investment of your time because a lot of very interesting green marbles were dropped. So please check important disclosures at the end of the pod and join us for our chat with Rao. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording a very special green marbles episode. Wouldn't you agree, Jordy? Yes, I guess so. Thank you for that uh, prompt answer to my uh, tee-up. It's special because we have a very special guest, Raul Pal. I'm very tempted to say Raul, but it's Raul. Is that correct? You know, everybody pronounces it a different way. Okay. Even my mother. So <laughs> how do you pronounce something with three vowels in the middle of it? Nobody ever knows. I don't know. How do you pronounce it? I kind of vary. So English people say Raul. It's like R-O-W-L. If they're from the north of England, it's Raul, R-A-L. It should be Raoul, I guess, because yeah. it's a French spelling. Okay. All right. What so. does your mother say? She's got to be the one who's correct. <laughs> Is she shouting at me or not? You know, it varies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll try Raoul, and we'll try not to shout at you. We really appreciate you coming in. For those people, and you're a very well-known figure, but for those people who are not familiar with you and Real Vision, if you wouldn't mind just giving us the two-minute version of who is Raoul and what is Real Vision, that would be a great way to start off. Yeah, of course. So as you can probably tell, I grew up in England. I could tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my background was finance. I started in the financial industry back in 1990, and my whole journey was in equities and equity derivatives and hedge funds. I kind of rode the wave of that double boom of the hedge fund industry and the derivative industry. I ended up at Goldman where I started and ran the hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives. After that, I moved across to the dark side in 2000 and went and started a global macro hedge fund for GLG Partners, ran that for a few years, then decided I hated that business because it was becoming harder and harder as macro returns are long cycle returns, but the everybody was now coming down to monthly reporting. And so you really couldn't trade macro in the old school way that I really liked. So I wanted to prove a point. So I'm sort of semi-retired, moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain and started writing macroeconomic research and investment strategy for all of the world's largest hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, that kind of stuff, to prove that a longer term time horizon was actually the edge everybody was looking for. And it wasn't from the trading time horizon. So that was Global Macro Investor. I've been writing that for 19 years. I was in Spain in 2008, saw the financial crisis coming, wrote about it. A lot of my clients were the people in the film, The Big Short, that kind of stuff. So everyone was all over that topic. After that, I was also in Spain during the European crisis. And that really hit home to me 
those twin crises because friends of mine went bankrupt. We almost lost the banking system. And people would come up to me in the street and say, why didn't we know what was going on? I've made money out of the thing. And I felt embarrassed and guilty. And I thought, we need to do something about this. And that started off twin journeys for me. One is the fragility of the entire economic system. And that got me down the Bitcoin path. So I probably wrote the first ever macroeconomic strategy piece on Bitcoin back in 2013, early 2013. Did your normie friends in TradFi think you were absolutely bonkers for talking about this then? Normie friends had no idea, but they don't have any idea what I talk about anyway. (laughs) But interestingly enough, the global macro investor clients, a lot of them got in there. They got got in early. Yeah, they just saw it as a phenomenal risk reward. It was trading at $200. And I just did sort of back of a cigarette packet maths about what could this be worth, stock to flow kind of ratio idea. And I said, well, it's probably worth a million bucks. So let's discount me as an idiot by 90%. It's worth a hundred grand and it's currently trading at $200. You'll never find a better opportunity in your entire lifetime. So I think everybody just understood the maths and said, look, we'll just treat it as an option. If it goes to zero, fine. If not, uh, the other thing I realized that, that the world had changed, Occupy Wall Street had happened. The Indignados in Spain, where 2 million people marched to the streets of Madrid from the provinces, and everybody was angry. Everybody was angry because they didn't understand what had happened to them and how the financial system had kind of let them all down. And there was a breakdown in trust in government and media, everything. I thought, I need to do something about this. So that was the start of Real Vision, where we thought, well, how can I democratize the information that I get, You know, having been at the epicenter of the financial industry? And I thought the best thing is just go and interview my friends from the epicenter of the financial industry and make it available as a subscription-based business. So we did that. We just started interviewing the world's best hedge fund managers, independent analysts, strategists, and it kind of blew people away and grew from there. And was it a video platform at the beginning? Yes. The idea was, we were trying to think, what's the best way? Do we do another newsletter idea? And we thought, you know, that's been done to death. And then it was the rise of YouTube and the rise of Netflix. Netflix was 2012-ish. And we just thought, you know, this is the answer, subscription-based video on demand. And this is a huge change for the world. And this has the power to really engage people. And that was the right bet. When we started, everyone said we were nuts. They said, it needs to be free. It needs to be short form. Nobody's ever going to pay for video. And we said, this is finance. This is so important for people. They will definitely pay and they will listen to long form. And we found out that we had the highest engagement rate of any media company in the world that we could find. That On average, 87% of people were watching an entire hour long video. That was before it was kind of fashionable to go down the rabbit hole on YouTube and stuff like that that we all do now. We invented this whole long form finance stuff. It didn't exist. Tim Ferriss was doing it in kind of wellness and other stuff. There was a few other podcasters doing long form stuff, but nobody done what we do. Well, it is interesting. I've been a member for some time and oh no, I'm delighted to be one. And I put the videos on and then I get into my car and of course I don't watch the video, but I do that because even though you put a fair bit of your stuff out on iOS and Spotify, you then are delayed by a few days time. So you create more than one way for people to access your content, right? Yes. So we have, everything has a written transcript. I mean, the new platform now is the transcripts at the center because people really like the learning experience. We found that Real Vision people are just learners. So transcript forward, just listen to an audio because people also like to do that, do it in the gym or in video. So it's kind of any way you want to engage in the content, you can engage in the content. There's a reasonable amount that's free on YouTube. So I've got my own YouTube channel now as well, which is Ralph Pal, the journeyman. But behind the paywall, there's a lot more stuff as well. 
And just before we move on and talk about all the different topics I want to get into with both of you, how big is Real Vision today? What are the metrics in a nutshell? Metrics in a nutshell, we have a top of funnel audience here between our YouTube and Twitter of one and a half million people or so. And then we have tens of thousands of paying subscribers in 120 countries around the world. It's extraordinary, the network. And the people in the network are really magical. I mean, there's everybody from famous hedge fund managers to product managers from Silicon Valley to family offices to students to retirees to people who own safari parks across Africa to, I mean, you name it, it's ludicrous. We've got this on the new platform, we've got this map of the world that, that you can spin around and you can see people. And we've got subscribers in Angola. You know, we've got, I don't know, 10, 20 people in Kenya. We've got people just literally across the world. So that we, we produce video content every day, different, three different membership tiers, but also written content, written research, live events. We have podcasts, we have YouTube channels, we have AI. It's a proper media company. It is, and maybe even more than that, it's now a platform. Right. It's a place that everybody can live their financial lives. Jordi and I were playing around with the platform before you got here, and, and the interesting thing about it is it's not just a platform to watch interviews and the like. It also has a lot of financial data as well. So for those people who maybe don't have a Bloomberg or can't afford a Bloomberg, this is a way to get a lot of that yeah, financial well, information. The too, idea right? that we had is we went back to first principles and thought, well, what do people need to succeed in their financial journey? And I broke it down to three things. They need knowledge, they need tools, and they need a network. So if we can provide those, it's going to give people a chance. So the idea with the videos is... Okay, fine. That's information. Knowledge is when you process it and apply it. And so we've got education and other things to help you turn information into knowledge. The tools are to help you do the job better, whether that's AI or whether it's market pricing and data and charts and all of the table stakes. And the network, I think, is the supercharger. Because if you can reach out to anybody and talk about anything across this incredibly powerful network of people, tens of thousands of people all across the globe, okay, now you're onto something. A bit of a social media play. As yeah, well. exactly. I think people should realize that when you're looking and you're thinking of real vision, when I wanted to learn, and I'm going back to when I really wanted to accelerate my learning on Web 3.0 and the benefits that would come from it, I spent most of my time on real vision. Now, when I looked at the platform, I will tell you, when people try to learn about markets, especially younger people, they don't have a context for history. And I think Raul and I can both agree since we started in the markets right around the same time. Part of the interesting part about learning about markets is it's you have to go through the reps, meaning you have to go through day after day of thinking of markets and going through seeing what you're seeing, have experiences, remembering them. And that takes time. But you also need a historical context. And one of the great things about having videos with price charts in one area it's really hard to go get a video on a topic and then be able to look at where the price was of Bitcoin at that time, where Eli Lilly was at that time, where the S&P was. And so I think the merging of videos plus having the historical context at one place is very, very valuable. And I hadn't thought about it until you guys were talking about the platform. That is the way that I learned. And we're also going to tag the videos eventually. So it automatically shows you those charts as you go through. That's awesome. Or you can just click in the transcript, the chart will come up. So it just makes it a seamless experience. It's this multimodal approach to learning yeah. that I think many of us have. Yeah, and both of us yeah. are Elliott Wave people. And so to see the context of what 
theoretically the wave pattern looked during the hype cycle is yeah. really important to kind of process that information. You never forget it. So, okay, you two Elliott wave people. <laughs> How did you meet? I think the official first time we met is when I was on your program. Yeah, I think so. We might have met elsewhere. Maybe. But our worlds were very intertwined because we were basically doing the same thing at different shops. Yeah, I don't know. Our careers were just interconnected. We spoke to the same people, but we never really got to know each other. <laughs> we kind of knew of each other. Yeah, very much so. And I was in London and he was in New York and I was like the main hedge fund guy in London and he was it's, the it's main like, hedge fund I'm, guy in New York. I'm Bizarro Raul. He joined <laughs> Goldman in 90. I joined Morgan Stanley in 92. He left Goldman in 2000. I left two years later. We both went to the hedge fund road. He got involved in Bitcoin before I did. I'm just following him. So... <laughs> All right. Well, in one area, I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't know who had it first because you've both talked about this a lot to sort of get into the the way in which you view the world. The concept of exponential growth is very, very important. Raul, could you just describe what you mean by your theory of exponential growth? Humans tend to think of things in linear. The passage of time is linear. The passage of most things that we understand are linear and most markets are relatively linear. And I had struggled more than Geordie had. I think he got to this realization earlier than I, was that there was something different about certain assets and that they didn't follow the same kind of cyclicality in the same way of mean reversion and that there was something else going on. Now, we're both students of charts and what you start looking at is putting these assets into log charts and they suddenly make sense. For those people not familiar, what is a log chart? A log chart just changes the scale of the relationship. So it's not a one-for-one -one relationship. It's the percentage change relationship, essentially. So things that like Bitcoin go up 6 million percent are impossible to chart. And then they fall 80%. It's just a mess. But once you put on a log chart, it's actually a very smooth thing. And you completely understand it. And that's because of exponentiality. So this is the compounding of growth that happens at kind of a lightning speed. And it's very difficult for humans to understand from today what that means tomorrow or the day after that because it goes so bananas in terms of scaling. We've seen this many times. We see it with viruses. Viruses are generally exponential in nature, not linear, because of the complex interrelationship. But we also see it with the rise of technology, the internet, networks tend to be exponential in growth and they lead to exponential opportunities as well and what you have to do is understand the world in two forms one is the linear form and one is an exponential form and they're two different things so you have to live this twin life and the hard thing is, is once you understand the exponentiality of certain things you can't go back to that linear world very easily i mean i just can't get excited about oil markets and you know currency markets anymore once you see exponentiality you just kind of go well everything's changed here so the exponential thing that i look at the most is i really started to understand it with crypto and i understood metcalf's law and how you value networks and networks are valued in metcalf's law basically the number of people on the network and basically the number of use cases or interconnections between people on the network and that was very typical of crypto and i used metcalf's law analysis to understand it. And then that made sense of price movement. But then I started thinking about technology and I realized we were about to go through this nexus of technologies all at the same time, which were all going to hit exponential adoption curves, all hitting Metcalfe's laws. 
And when you put a number of Metcalfe's laws on top of each other, you get something called Reed's Law. And Reed's Law, even if you ask ChatGPT, can't find many examples of it in history. But we're hitting it now. We're hitting it now because we've got robotics, AI, EV. We've got distributed compute. We've got 5G, 6G. We've got satellite. We've got space. We've got um, genetic sciences. We've got an crypto, all of these things everywhere, everything all at once. And what is Reed's Law exactly? Reed's Law is kind of the, sorry, Metcalfe's Law squared, essentially. So it's like, it's ludicrous mode. <laughs> so if you think of the exponential curve is steep, yeah. well, Reed's Law is even steeper. Now, the thing about what I call the exponential age is this is all happening in the shortest period of time that humanity's ever dealt with change. People are familiar by now of how fast AI is coming, but people still a linear extrapolating the change. Jordy, do you think people are familiar with how rapidly AI is coming? No. So I don't think people have put in the context of what generative AI means as an accelerator. And that's the problem is that since ChatGPT got released and the arms race for generative AI picked up and I mean, both of us, Rowan and I are working on major projects and using LLMs and using third-party uh, groups, we immediately jumped on it and saw it. And I think that because we realized the benefit of it, but there's also another side too, which is it scares the hell out of big places because their tech budgets are so enormous and they have infrastructure from the machine learning world of the last decade. And all of a sudden, the barriers to entry just got really, really low for smaller places that are innovative to get in. You have to have some kind of tech side to you. You have to understand it. That's why Raul's work in, in crypto and spending all of these times on Web 3.0 and interviewing all of these people. Uh, we talk about it all the time, but you need curiosity in times like this because you have to be willing to adapt quickly. And the change that's happened this year is dramatic. So I don't think people are there. And on the case of singularity, I'll just go a different direction. One of the ways to see exponential innovation is to see the destruction left in its path. So just like a tornado, depending on how great it is, the destruction gets worse. What we saw from 2007 on, I mean, it's hard to fathom that in 2006, you needed a camera and now you don't need a camera. If you go through every app on your phone and realize how many hardware has been replaced, you never could have thought that was going to happen. So the destruction of businesses and companies, the reason why you could have seven companies go from a hundred billion in revenues in 2010 to now $1.7 trillion in revenues. We talk about the market cap. It's the revenue side that's more staggering about how you could have that kind of exponential growth in revenues and how many companies at the malls, how many things you've left in the dust. So the destruction on the other side of it shows up as well. It's also at a societal level, it's so vast what this means. How I try and explain it is what this digital age has done has basically collapse the cost of everything by creating hyperabundance of everything. So if you think of cloud compute, storage of the internet or the use of the internet or data or any of these things, they've all basically collapsed to zero in cost. What we're just about to do is collapse knowledge to zero in cost. So knowledge was a scarce human asset. It is not anymore. It's like before somebody working in a field was the scarce human asset until the plow came along and the tractor and all of this stuff. But this is replacing human knowledge at a scale and speed that we don't comprehend. And as Geordie says, the change is coming, 
It's a matter of how you deal with it. Well, let me just ask you this, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned costs, because the both of you have clearly taken the red pill when it comes to exponential growth, and we're, we'll get into crypto later. And I believe you have a similar view on inflation, which is it's going down and down and down. This has got to be the most deflationary thing that it's a deflationary nuclear bomb. I love that phrase. But as you both know, you know, you have other smart people on the other side, Jamie Dimon, Jeff Gunlock, lots of people who run lots of money and see flows who have a very different view. So how is it that the two of you see this and yet other people who are well placed in the financial markets see it very differently? I mean, what's is there a disconnect here? Yeah. I think it's, as Geordie was talking about before, is most people almost don't want to understand what's happening. So they're still looking at the world in that linear world of oil prices and wages and, you know, could wages be sticky because people are coming out of the workforce because of the baby boomers are retiring. And I mean, I'm like, you have no understanding. Robots are the new demographic. We're going to have more people on earth than we've ever had, and they're going to go exponential. But you're calling the robots the people? We say robots are... Robots are demographic. They're robots demog- would be the demog- they're demographic okay. units now. Yeah. So what you've done, if you think of GDP growth as being a function of population growth, productivity growth, and debt growth, well, debt growth, we blew that up in 2008. And we're just servicing debts now. That's, that's debt growth these days. So you've got population growth. Well, humans aren't procreating any longer. And productivity growth has been very slow. So here you've got this new technology that creates infinite humans and infinite technology. Now, within this, you will lower the cost of energy because basically all productivity is the amount of output you get per unit of energy. So if you look at the inflation-adjusted price of oil over the last 60 years, about $40, and it's been stable. So with new technology, you will lower the cost of energy to, let's say, 10. So that's a 3x multiplier on productivity alone. And then you throw in AI. It changes everything. So it has the ability to change the outcome for humanity and get us over this debt issue that we've got now by increasing growth. But how do humans exist in this world? It's a different thing as well, you know? Is there a universal basic income world? There's a lot of complexity around what this means. But there's a sweet spot, which is probably the next 10 years, Jordi, I would say, yeah. where we shouldn't feel threatened by it. We should feel like we've just been given a superpower. And I'll add one thing. Anyone who's talking about structural inflation, there's one commonality. If you can find a person who doesn't remember the 70s, so anyone below the age of 40, they're not talking about it. And the reason is because anyone below the age of 40 was born when they had a computer in their home, or at least were remember with a computer in their home. Everyone who is our age, and I'm part of that demographic, who doesn't spend their time on technology is going to have an issue. But when you bring the people that are running businesses, I was with the former chief information officer with one of the large investment banks. And they made a statement to me when talking about AI. So this person is now in charge of the AI development and let's say infusion into the business. And the former chairman said, so is this going to be another one of these innovations that means I have to hire 3000 people to get rid of 2,500? That's the difference with this one is everybody who runs a bank or runs a big business has seen that they always end up having a tech budget, which is higher the next year than it was before. And so they don't see this as really being deflationary because their expenses continue to go higher. I agree with Raul. 
it's not just robotics. As far as I know, if a human being works 60 hours a week, that's a big week. Robots can work 168 hours a week. You're seeing data point after data point come on, and we'll talk about some other things related to AI. But I really do believe we're at a point now where whether it's the labor force reaching a peak, whether it's demographics in general matched up with the labor force, the productivity side, and the fact that we just don't have any appetite for debt, this is a productivity boom, which is the only answer. It's interesting to see how people actually scorn us when we talk about this. Yeah. You sit down with some of these, even the legends of the industry, and you try and talk them through it, and they just look at you as if you're a moron. And you're like, I can't explain it to you because you don't want to even use the tools of understanding. This is this idea about linear thinking versus exponential thinking. They're so used to linear thinking, they just don't want to believe it. It's why very few people in the macro space ever manage to invest in technology. I think basically... Stan is the only guy, Stan Druckenmiller is about the only guy who got his head around it. The rest didn't. They just never, because it just looked overvalued to them. It always looked hypey to them because they didn't understand the difference between linear and exponential. The framework gets frozen in time and it, it becomes the basis for how they look at everything moving forward for the rest of their careers. And everybody thinks that 1970s is going to happen again and everyone's going to get their payback for the monetary largesse and everyone's going to get the payback for how society has been structured and the economy has been structured. But it's very, very unlikely to happen. This is a good segue to talk about whether or not we are headed into a recession. At first blush, you have different viewpoints on that. But as I thought about it more, I'm not so sure how far apart you are. But just to kind of kick things off, Ralph, you believe that we are probably headed towards a quote unquote recession? Oh, we're there now. And I put a poll on Twitter and had, I don't know, 10,000 people answer it. And basically, everybody's laid off staff and everyone said they're seeing slower growth. So I do believe we are in a recession, but I'm in the camp that it's a 1990s-style recession, which was a mild recession, a bit of a reset after the overhang of the post-COVID thing. And my forward-looking indicators are already through the other side, and the markets are trading that. So the recession was last year in terms of markets. So I don't really care about it anymore. It's now just a dinner party talking point or screaming at each other on Twitter. But really, the markets had their bear market last year. Crypto was down 85%. The Nasdaq was down 38%. That's proper recession bear markets done done and over for me what about you jordy well see basically then we're in complete agreement because i think oh, that's we, no fun then. i think well no no no. <laughs> but let's rephrase this we're never going into the question you're asking there is no such thing in my world of recessions anymore and yeah, you said this when i interviewed you and i thought it was a really startling talk talk what you mean by that so let's use this first of all is commercial real estate in a recession yes is housing in a recession. Purchase applications were down 40% last year. Existing home sales were down 33%. There's no bounce whatsoever. Were airlines in a recession? I mean, I can go through every industry. We've had recessions in almost every industry. And a recession is about over-investing and then seeing a pullback. So we've already had kind of rolling recessions. But regardless, the reason I say we'll never be in a recession, once the iPhone came out, something really important happened in the world. We use debt, to use your analogy, to scale companies. 
we used debt to be able to grow a business. So if you wanted to grow a business in the industrial revolution and you're Ford and you want to sell in Chicago and you want to sell in San Francisco, you had to issue debt. Well, the companies of the prior decade didn't use debt to scale their business. This was the benefit of the virtual world. We got a growth from $100 billion in combined revenue for the seven big companies to now $1.7 trillion, and we didn't have to go out and take debt to fund that combination of VC, but mainly it was by destroying other businesses. So you already broke the relationship. And remember, if we're talking about population growth or the workforce and debt and those two, well, we already hurt the debt side for corporations. Debt may have grown, but it grew at the government side, not at the household side and not at the corporate side. And I think we broke that without people realizing that, oh, my God, you can scale a business without taking debt in the virtual world, in the digital economy. Well, now we're at the next phase and we're now going to attack the workforce. So now we're going to have an explosion in people, which means this is the final link. So everyone's saying recession by definition is saying job losses. We've created 2.5 million jobs so far this year. It's not a recession in the terms that people that are forecasting it will happen. But it has been a recession in the same way Raul said. We've seen a pullback. The reason I don't think we'll get a recession is because we're in the exponential age. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, which was it was a decided recession, everyone stay in your house. And then we printed money. Aside from that, we haven't had anything except the unemployment rate go down since the iPhone came out. It has gone down continuously. So I'll just finish on this and then you can respond to it. The closer you get to abundance, by definition, the further away you get from scarcity. Scarcity is what causes recessions. You overbuild into something. So if you believe that we will be able to create things instantaneously, by definition, we should never be out of balance between supply and demand. And to that point, there was another piece of magic that got invented in 2008, which is quantitative easing. Yep. So people want, and I see this, it's the same kind of inflation's coming back as the 70s. They want their 50, 60% correction markets. I'm like, it can't ever happen again. Much to your point, because now capital is abundant. Because when the central bank prints, they're debasing the currency. So recessions generally are, there's too much leverage, and then there's not enough collateral. That's what happens. But in an environment with quantitative easing, the collateral doesn't go down in value because optically it goes up. So if you think of the Argentinian stock market, it goes up in a straight line. Well, it's actually not. In dollar terms, it's actually gone down 90%. That's debasement of currency. So this debasement of currency optically never allows the collateral to go bust. So you will see it again very soon. The banking system needs to be recollateralized again because of the commercial real estate and other issues. And what will happen, it will end up on the Fed balance sheet again, and the collateral will be made whole again. So you can't have the 50% crash. Yes, you can have it in some parts of the sector. You know, the growth, the end of technology, that was down 70%. That's normal, but you can't have the value of overall collateral. And we will see it very soon with the bond market. Now, the bond market was allowed to fall. We've had the largest fall since 1791 or whatever the yeah, number was. I saw that. But the reality is, is because they changed the rules on the banks, they didn't have to mark to market. Obviously, if they've marked to market, every single bank in the world is bust. Every insurance company, everybody. But again, we will see that this will end up on the central bank balance sheet. So therefore, it can't make these drawn out, protracted, evil, nasty recessions in the same way. What you're saying is basically the whole world should watch more cowbell, that Saturday Night Live skit, because... And what's the name of the uh, the guy who wants more cowbell? Christopher Watkins. Yeah. He's basically the fit. Walken, yeah. yeah, he just needs more cowbell anytime things go off the rail. And in the same way, what you're saying is, in your view, 
the Fed has essentially and other central banks will have essentially saw to it that we will never have those types of painful cycles. Geordie's point's really, really important. And I hadn't really thought that through, that in a world of excess abundance, not even just abundance, scarcity is what causes the Austrian business cycle. And yes, we've just gone through that with the pandemic because there was a scarcity because we were shut up and then there was no, not enough production. We had an imbalance for a period of time. So an imbalance for a period of time, fine. That creates recessions. But yeah, that's something really interesting in the fact that I guess the only places left where there is scarcity is still in energy. We haven't solved that, but I think that's what the Europeans and everybody are trying to do with the kind of green drive is, yes, it helps obviously the planet and everything else, but the moment you can get off oil as the main form of energy, you can actually drive down the cost because then it digitizes. Everything gets digitized, goes to zero in cost. So I think that is, then you, if you do that, it's almost impossible to have a recession. Yeah. And again, if you take San Francisco, you take New York City, they're both in recessions. Like the problem is for people who are forecasting recession, and this is the garbage in, garbage out. And I'm writing a paper on this because the data of the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s before the Internet started to me is garbage. It's not a relevant data point. And everyone who's saying there'll be inflation, there'll be a recession. We've had three recessions during my... Raul started during a recession. I started exactly. just after one. I've seen three recessions. One started after 9-11. It was kind of, it was going on before, but the revisions came after. So 9-11 really was a game changer for the economy. The great financial crisis, we decided to let Lehman go and we paid the consequences for that. And out of that was born the ability of stopping Silicon Valley Bank, the fastest run on a bank ever, digital Everyone got scared to death. That's like not even talked about at all. And if you go back to March, every single podcast was on that phenomenon. And then you had the pandemic. So I just don't know what event can happen. But the thing that has changed is, and this is what's going to happen. I have said to people when I go out and speak, we will have more bankruptcies over the next five years than any time in this country's history. And the reason will be, and we're on pace this year for one of the largest in history is because we have rates at a level that is above nominal GDP for the first time since before the internet started, which means if you're a company that has depended on debt, nominal GDP is going to grow up four to 5% again, but now fed funds rates going to be up at five and change for the foreseeable future. So that will, to use the Austrian economics, that on one side from Hayek will hurt businesses and knock them out. But then at the same time, you have Schumpeter, with creative destruction and AI will be the other force. But out of these business failures and these bankruptcies will be a massive birth of business formations, which will be little tiny companies, which will take bits and pieces from all of these companies. And I know we're going to get into some conversation on Tesla where I think we agree, but where the story is this merging and Raul is probably at the forefront of this connecting the digital world to the robotic world is a really important inflection point. The iPhone was the first part of hardware. This is a major time now to combine robotics and artificial intelligence. And over the next 10 years, the same way you look back and wish you had thought of the iPhone that way, it is the merging of those two. I want to talk about Dojo and Tesla, but while I have you both on the economy, I just want to cover off crypto. Rare is it that I am in a room with two people, and I'm the least bullish of the three of us on crypto. Raul, you've talked about we're in crypto spring, or we're soon going to be in crypto spring. Jordi has written several papers on crypto and has been a bull 
pretty much since we've known each other. A good friend of mine, a fellow in Nairobi, Wilford Odero, was eager to get your perspective on the next bull run. And his question is, in a de-dollarizing world, perhaps Bitcoin might be the best way to play crypto. But in a world where the liquidity cycle is once again reigning supreme, maybe Ethereum or Solana would be the best way. So if you would, could you both speak about the best way from your vantage points to play crypto, assuming, you know, someone listens to you and say, yes, I agree with Raul and Jordy, risk assets have a good pathway in front of them. So I'm going to reframe all of this kind of in line with how Jordy, (laughs) you want to take over the podcast? I'm looking for (laughs) replacement. Hey, hey, what's going on here? Everybody knows him. (laughs) So I think Jordy raised an important point about in a digital world, we have different things. And what we have now is digital economies. So digital economies there's the crypto economy is the largest digital economy because it has its own currency. It's kind of a nation state. And you have multiple nation states within it of which, you know, Ethereum would be one, Solana would be the other. So it's really interesting. And that has gone through a recession by all measures. It's gone through a recession and because the scarcity in that space was capital. Um, so capital dried up. So crypto spring is when liquidity comes back into that economy, you're getting FDI, which is, if you think of the Bitcoin ETF as potential FDI, it comes into this new economy, it gets recycled, it generates, you know, economic boom and productivity and all of the stuff. So the world is very different now. So we're basically like Jordan and I early in our careers, we'll be talking about what emerging markets we thought were interesting. These are emerging markets, and we're trying to choose between them. So in that world, they're different nation states and they have different roles. So Bitcoin, it has, it's kind of more like Switzerland. It kind of is less exciting because it does what it does on the tin and it's done it forever and it's, it's well done. Ethereum is a bit more like the United States. Everybody's building on everything. There's a lot of activity going on, etc. And Solana is something like South Korea. It's like a mini me of what's happening in the United States, but it's different and it's fast growing, and there's interesting ideas and stuff like that. So that's how I think about these things. And then I look at network adoption models. And what I see is over time, Metcalfe's law lowers the returns over time, just because of adoption saturation. So Bitcoin will do out of a full bull cycle or economic cycle in crypto land, Bitcoin will likely do less well than Ethereum, because more people are building on it, which is Metcalfe's law. And Solana is earlier in its cycle. And they're just about to introduce, I don't know if you've got, I've, I don't know if you've gone down the rabbit hole yet, but Fire Dancer, the jump trading have developed, which is a validator on Solana. Sounds complicated, but it's basically new Solana. Solana's the fastest blockchain in the world at 65,000 TPS. It's usable for social media. Uh, Twitter runs at about 25,000 TPS transactions per second. The jump trading guys using Solana have got blockchain running at 1.2 million. Okay, so this is a, a so infinite throughput, essentially, basically infinite throughput. It's fast enough to use high frequency trading for exchanges, which is really, really low latency, massive throughput stuff. That's what it's been built for. So, okay, is that going to see adoption and mean that Solana's an accelerant in this cycle versus the others? Probably. But, you know, it's again, the exponentiality of even 
TPS speeds is happening. And that means more more people can use it. People say, well, I don't really know what that means. It basically means that all social media can now go on blockchain. So then you don't get the issue of censorship or or governments taking it over or whatever it may be, or you can own your own data, which is not a massive thing. The only thing we're missing, I think, in blockchain technology is file size. So you can't put video yet, but that will come as well. So then everything goes on the blockchain. I mean, it's the way that all value gets transacted, moves and stored in the digital world. It's just not there yet. So for the Wilfords and others who are eager to get your vantage point, it sounds like Solana and Ethereum are a more aggressive, interesting way to play crypto. Yes, but Bitcoin will do fine too. The crypto economy will grow. All of these will do fine. And then it's a matter of nuance about asset allocation and maximization of returns. And the only thing I'm going to add, because I, I didn't realize this, the great thing, Raul spends, and we were talking about this beforehand, just the two of us learn from talking with other people because it connects dots. And one of the things I said before we started this was, I'm going to be able to ping pong off the things you're saying. And one of the things I think people should really pay attention to in listening to this podcast, so far, the amount of dollars that has driven the crypto world, to me, has been very much driven by the same thing that drove the VC boom that happened. And meaning that the market cap at some point has to grow dramatically. But for the market cap to grow dramatically, meaning the ecosystem or the crypto economy, as he calls it, to grow, that's going to come from the masses. It's not going to come from big hedge fund people. It's not going to come from people leaving Goldman Sachs and moving into that world. The phase one, absolutely, that makes sense. But since I don't believe the VC world will be able to use the Web 2.0 playbook, the Web 3.0 playbook comes with the rise of the many. So in the argument where the destruction of older established businesses, the physical economy, the wealth that was created, I've always said, and I said it on the interview we did together, authenticity and ownership in the fiat system is going to be under attack from the AI world. AI is also going to attack established businesses, including the big seven. I don't agree with the fact that they will be the winners of the AI world. They might be for the next two years, but the ability to start up a business without debt and without people means the people that are in trouble are the ones that have debt or have people, by definition. Also, really interesting thing is I started looking at this millennial cohort and how they invest. And it's fascinating because what they've done is they've done what they're told because they've been a good cohort because they like earning their badges and they go to university and they get the certificates and all of that. So they all have their 401ks, which is what's made passive investing outperform everything because the sheer numbers of people just saying, I don't understand, don't trust the system, we're just going to buy 401k in passive. But the other thing they did was 2020, they became financialized. They realized that their futures were screwed and their expected future return was not as high as their parents and that they couldn't afford a house and et cetera. So they became more risk-taking. So with their discretionary income, they became risk-takers. And that's the rise of Robinhood, which was technology investing and now options investing on technology. So it's pretty racy stuff. And crypto. And then I started going through, and this was a fascinating thing for me, and I don't think most people will realize this. I started going through online brokerages and the size of the active users. So Interactive Brokers, which is like the smart person's brokerage platform, 5 million users, 300,000 daily active users. It's minuscule. Schwab, TD Ameritrade, or uh, Fidelity, they're all in the 2 to 4 million daily active users or weekly active users, whichever the metric was, monthly active users. Most of their accounts are just the 401k, RAA-style boomer accounts, and it's not being used by young people at all. Robinhood is 
24 million accounts, of which 12 million are active, right? It's staggering, 50% active users. And that's in this market because that was in their last quarterly report. Coinbase has 108 million customers, of which currently 9 million are active because we're in a crypto bear market. And I was at Coinbase yesterday speaking to a bunch of the senior people there. And we were just talking through the stat. It's like, well, once crypto normalizes in volume, I, we're not in crypto recession. We're, coming, we're in the spring. Once we get to normal crypto growth markets, that number is 45 million. And as the space is growing at 200% a year, that number goes to 100 million very fast. That is this groundswell of people coming into this ecosystem. Ignore the big money. They will follow but the little guy gets a chance to front run the institutions for the first time in history, which is because VC is the opposite. The average 35-year-old cannot get into VC. They just don't have the money to do it. So they're shut out of the highest part of the return cycle. It angers people. The crypto is the inverse pyramid. So they get into the early VC stage returns in massive numbers. I mean, 100, you know, 9 million people, 50 million people, 100 million people. That's that. The other thing just about the crypto economy that's fascinating. We've gone through a recession, yet the population grew by 42% last year. So the number of active wallets grew 42% when the market fell 80%. If that's not a signal, I've never seen it. And if you want one more, I'm going to give you one more, just so people can really look at this this way. If you wanted to pick a point, next year we know is going to be a volatile year with the US election to start off with. But if you really wanted a, a number what are we, just north of a trillion dollars in the market cap right now of crypto? Yeah. I think we're about to pass that in terms of the interest payments for the United States debt right now. Yeah. So these numbers are, the crypto market's just not priced properly for the size of the U.S. government debt. Totally agree. It's an advertisement for crypto. If you could, I would love for you both to speak about crypto and the connection to AI and why these two technologies really should be viewed holistically. So if you have a robot, let's call it a car, or a fridge, or a toaster, or whatever you want, and you have AI in it, all it needs is a payment system. Crypto is the payment system for all of this. All of these technologies, that's why I call it the exponential age, these are all, they're not different things. They're not parallel paths. They're all convergent. And we're hitting that point where already in space, so in space, they're already creating too much data in space, so they're starting server farms. In okay. space. In space. And because there is no sovereignty in space, there needs to be a payment system. So they're already using crypto rails, and that's being explored in how to do that. So that is the rise of robots paying robots for activity or AI paying AI for activity. So these things are foundational layers. I don't think of AI as an applications layer. It's the foundational layer. Energy and AI are really foundational layers. And I would put crypto as a foundational layer above that. It's the applications layer of value on top. And since I've already talked about crypto, I'm just going to say three simple words or three simple phrases. The need for authenticity has gone parabolic because of artificial intelligence. So that gets you back in this. The Hollywood writer's strike and this battle between labor and management is also a big story. And I wouldn't say management, so I don't think of this as strikes. I think of this as the middleman, because that was not a a strike against anything more than, hey, we're the content providers. We deserve more of what we do. 
And I think NFTs and royalties and smart contracts will enable that to go. And I've written many, many papers on this at this point. So I think that's going to happen more and more. And then finally, and this is the simplistic thing, I believe AI, as I said, lowers the barriers to entry because you can start up a business and get it going so quickly because you don't need debt or people, which means it's a form of decentralization. And this is the rise of decentralization, which means it has to benefit the many. So when Raul talks about even in a bear market, they're still opening more digital wallets and this is still a growth thing. That's what people are going to have to follow. And remember, you're going to hear the same thing on Ozempic. The numbers are staggering in terms of the growth rate and the growth rate of digital wallet relative to everything going on is a representation of the demographic shift. It's a representation of so many things. But one of the things is it's the rise of the many. And I'll just keep saying this. The rise of the many is one of the things that happens with AI. It enables small people to do great things very quickly. And you can see that just with the plugins. And a lot of that money is going to go into the crypto economy. Also, another point uh, to riff of what Geordie was saying is we're bringing new robot people. Robot is AI or robot. You know, what I'm saying is technological people into the global economy. And so now we need to authenticate who is one of those people and who is a human. And blockchain technology allows the authentication of this. So the first instance of it is we are most likely going to break this country over the election because of deep fakes. Because AI is infinitely scalable, deep video fakes of anybody saying anything. You will not know anything that is true and what's not true. So you think the election is going to be a mess because of this? Yes. And I think the, like the banks will find out of 2008 ongoing for the next decade, I think the big tech companies are going to get fined and fined for hundreds of billions of dollars. And I've spoken to them all about it and they understand the risk. I'm like, you need to authenticate who is human here. And sorry, a blue check mark on Twitter is just not going to do it. You need a, a tokenized, whether it's a zero knowledge proof way of having digital identity. And it's, it's now a societal urgency, but we're not going to get there. So we are going to create so much mistrust that nobody's going to be able to trust anything anymore. And, you know, sovereign nation states will play that game because that's the typical propaganda way of breaking apart a country is, is break down all trust. So... That is going to happen. And people are kind of incentivized. Even the political parties are incentivized to do it. And AI will do it. And so eventually, I think we need authentication for both the AI content and what is human. And that's okay. They can coexist. But you just need to know who you're dealing with. Now, that do creates a whole bunch of societal stuff down the track. Do you have any hope for WorldCoin, the Sam Altman project, or anything like that to fix the identity challenge? I don't think so. For me, but I don't know. For me, I, I really I spoke to everybody at Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and a couple of the others, Instagram, and I'm like, guys, this is going to happen and it's going to end up on your shoulders. They get it. And I said, listen, all we need to do is accept a common standard that I can log in with my token on Amazon that's equally applicable to Apple. And they were like, yes, we understand. We can't get the businesses to do it. They just won't do it. They just won't cooperate. So it's going to have to To a come common standard. To a common standard. So yeah. it's, you know, people won't like to hear this, but it's going to come from government. It's the only way. And I think the CBDC digital wallets will be also digital uh, identity. It reminds me of, you remember what it was like at, at Goldman Sachs to cross over to the fixed income areas and equity person and get them to do a trade for you on your, like... 
the divisional problems. And this is where decentralization becomes really important. Now you're talking about it with the big five. And I think that's going to be one of the issues with AI when people think that they're going to dominate. Are they going to get out in front and start running around and do they have a quote unquote technological moat around them? I think people are going to think that for a while until the revenue doesn't show up. And I think to your point, there should be some kind of agreement and the government's going to have to get involved at some point. But I think this on this authenticity thing, and now that we're speaking about it, the election next year coming at a time when the interest payments on the debt are so high and inflation is still a thing that people care about and the migrant crisis and everything going on in the country, it just argues so much for next year being a really important year for the crypto economy. But in particular, if you believe that AI is going to accelerate, which I do and I think you do too, and that next year is going to even have more amazing things getting announced constantly, it's probably a big year for, for crypto. Yeah, and because also election years, they tend to be more cowbell, more stimulus because you want to appease the people to win the votes, right? That's cutting interest rates to pay the interest payments because they have to, getting rid of QT and maybe moving to QE to monetize the debt payments, which is what they've been doing over time, and then fiscal stimulus. That is like the perfect trifecta for crypto. Before we leave AI, I did want to ask you, Raul, about a uh, very interesting interview you did recently with Beth Kindig, I believe I pronounced her name right. Yeah. And you spoke passionately about Dojo. Yeah. For our audience, many of whom may not be familiar, can you just give us an overview of what Dojo is and why you're so interested in it? So Tesla, I think, is the most misunderstood, probably the most important company on earth right now. Because what they're doing is exactly as we're talking about here, they are putting together the robot with the AI, but they're doing it in really clever ways. So that is a Tesla car. The AI, they just took the leap from machine learning, which was a bunch of programmers saying, you stop at a red light. This is what a red light looks like. You do this, right? That's machine learning. And they changed it around and basically did a video version of an LLM, a VLM. And what they said is, we'll ingest all of the video content from 5 million Teslas on the road and see how humans drive and just let it learn. Okay, this is game-changing. Now, it has been done before. They didn't invent the technology, but they've got more scale and more video than any other company on Earth. The only thing they needed was Dojo, which was a supercomputer to process it. The one thing they're still missing is the data storage. That's a big problem for everybody. People haven't heard or thought about this yet, which can't store this amount of data, and Elon actually mentioned it. So they've got a supercomputer that is going to be the fastest in the world with all of the GPUs. So they've got what they need to go to battle, which is GPUs. That is the primary resource in this new economy. They have more robots on the road than anybody else. They have a new technology, which is this VLM idea, or LVM, whatever it is. And so now you've got these smart robots. So there's no surprise that they build a humanoid robot because now you can train it in exactly the same way. And again, people don't understand. If you look at the images from the guy in the suit dancing on stage in 2021, to 2022 showing a full working robot, to 2023 showing a robot with dexterity, and they've only just started using the video training technology, these humanoid robots are going to get exponential as well. And even Elon says, I think this is bigger than the cars. So what you've got is these machines that learn in their own free state to operate within the physical world that we live in. So are you referring to autonomous operators of vehicles as the first application of this? Or are you speaking even more broadly about the ability of robots? Yeah, it's a much bigger thing than this. What this is, 
is the ability for machines to live in our world in an autonomous way. That is what Tesla is building. And the reason they're building it is to get to Mars. And I know this is going to be ridiculous, but I've gone down this deep rabbit hole. Is Elon is actually going back to first principles about going to Mars. The hardest thing of going to Mars is obviously getting there. The other thing, actually the biggest thing, is financing it. So you break it all down to how he's financed it. You think about SpaceX, you know, Starlink is genius. When I use Starlink in Little Cayman, it's a game changer. So that cash flow positive plus the rockets plus the government things allows them to build the biggest rocket in the world that gets them to Mars. When you get to Mars, well, what do you put on Mars? Well, you need vehicles. Well, there's no fuel, so you need solar. You need workers. And the other thing you need to do is because the Mars surface is, is not conducive to humanity to live on, you need to go underground. So that's what the boring company is. And if you look at the size of the boring company, capsules are exactly the same size as the Starship rocket. So the boring company is not about a tunnel from... No, none of it is. <laughs> it's all first order thinking. Everything is a component part to this one mission, which he stands a high probability of doing. And so if you think about it, so then you've got the Cybertruck. The Cybertruck trained with the ability to not use a fossil fuel so you can put it into space... They've already put a car into space, right? You put the Cybertruck on the surface of Mars. It's made for it. It uses solar to power itself, and it drives itself without humans. Anything that requires manual dexterity, you've got the Optimus robot to do. So you can build a base on Mars without humans having to do it first before it's, it's habitable. I know this is crazy talk, but if you read his book, the breadcrumbs are all there all the way through in everything. Even when he talked about the Cybertruck, people say, can you use it on Mars? He said, Yes, of course you can. You know, the boring company, can you use this for burrowing on Mars? It's like, yes, of course you can. So this whole thing that he's doing with Tesla is gigantic. I bought three cars in the last 11 years. They've all been Teslas. Yeah, me too. So we're on the same page. We've had one the entire I can't go back. I don't, when I rent cars, I rent Teslas. It doesn't really matter. But I think the most important point and where I agree is the learning side. So everyone will talk about the fact, well, GM and Ford and we've got Cruise and we've got Waymo and all these autonomous. If you have a smarter car, because it's a very complex thing to drive a car as a human being. And so if all of a sudden the traffic lights aren't working, well, how do we determine what's going to go? You can have as much sensor data as you want, but the multimodality side of being able to use video to look around and then have a supercomputer to take all of that through an LLM, it became very obvious to me that he is speeding up the process of having incredibly smart hardware. I don't believe the big, whatever you want to say, everyone X Tesla, so take all of them, Google, Amazon. Tesla seems to be the one that would be the leader of those companies as the inflection point of AI combining with hardware. So that gets into the robotic thing, and I think people are missing that point. That's where I think we are. That's fascinating. And gentlemen, I just have to say this conversation has flown by. I don't think I would be offending either one of you when I say both of you can really talk. And I've learned my lesson, which is to schedule for a greater period of time for the next time we have you back on, well, hopefully in the spring. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. We have you on record now. I do want to end <laughs> with just one note based upon everything that we are watching unfold in the Middle East as to seasoned traders who have seen many macro shocks and events that get all sorts of blaring headlines and there's terrible loss of life and the like. For the investor, thinking about 
how to respond to this. Can you just leave us with some advice as to how they should think about it? I learned a lesson, which is never trade geopolitics. Firstly, you have no information. You literally know about 5% of what is known by others. So I don't like to trade geopolitics. But if I think about it in probabilistic terms, and again, just not talking about the horrific situation going on, but from an investment standpoint, is if this does not escalate to Iran and Saudi Arabia, it is a non-economic event. If it escalates, of which nobody wants that to be the case, in my view, so I give it a 10% probability. If it doesn't escalate, it's a non-economic event. If it escalates, it's a major economic event because of oil markets, and we still have that issue. Yeah, and I'll just, I think he said the important words, and we've both been involved in more geopolitical events that we can possibly remember. And I completely agree. You do not trade geopolitics. You watch the news and you see the horrific photos and videos and everything, and it immediately brings you to a dark place because you can go there on the anxiety curve and go into some forecast of how bad things are going to be. But that's usually not what happens. From this particular one, last year we had Russia invade Ukraine. Oil prices were $40 higher than they were within 10 days. The Fed was just embarking on tightening. We had nominal GDP up at close to 15%. We're in a completely different situation. If oil prices don't go marketedly higher, then I'm going to agree with Raul on the impact. I'm sure there's going to be more escalation. I'm sure this won't go away for some time, and it's all ahead of a presidential election. But I think the first rule is don't trade geopolitics and focus on, is this going to have an impact on the economy? Is this going to have an impact on the way business leaders make decisions? And as of now, that's not going to happen the same way last year with Russia, Ukraine. There wasn't a big impact outside of what happened in Europe. And also, to go back to a point you made earlier, be very careful what you read, what you see, what you hear online. You will see stories that Iran is doing this, Saudi's doing this, China's doing this, Russia's doing that. Don't believe anything until you can fully verify it because this environment is exactly the environment where people want to garner fear and misinformation and anger because anger and fear is high now. So to ramp that up is very attractive to many players. So just be super careful in how you deal with online. Just don't do the internet thing, which is believe everything because you've just seen it. Just don't believe anything until you check it. Be mindful of the clicks. Raul, thank you for your wisdom, for offering so many wonderful green marbles. When you come back, Jordi and I will pledge to try and pronounce your name correctly. Well, you both pronounce it differently, which is perfect. <laughs> we're going to invite his mother here. <laughs> right, to yell at him. She's, right. she's Dutch. She does have this Dutch accent as well. So that doesn't help either. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Loved it. Thanks. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.